the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc In the second season of the hit CBS sitcom, The Big Bang Theory, actor John Ross Bowie was cast to play the reoccurring nerd bully character, Barry Kripke. A decade later, he was cast as one of the stars of the ABC sitcom, Speechless. Before diving into acting, John was a punk rock kid. In the 80s, he attended punk, ska, and hardcore shows at CBGB's, The Ritz, and wherever else in New York he can get in. He later played bass in the 90s punk rock band Egghead. These years were very important to him and his development as a person, and influenced how he approached comedy, improv, and acting. In fact, he devotes a lot of space in his new memoir, No Job for a Man, talking about his punk years. Today, we chat with John about this time period, and no surprise, he knows quite a bit about ska. John Ross Bowie, not Bowie, right? Not Bowie, yeah. I got it right, first time. How did you know uh, that his name was pronounced Bowie and not Bowie? Because whenever we have to read a book for this podcast, you read it because you read fast, and I read slow, so I listen to the audiobook. Uh-huh. And so since I listened to the audiobook, I heard him say it. Nice. And I took made a mental note. Good thing, too, because uh, he mentions in the book that uh, people mispronouncing his name is, is a pet peeve of his. Well, I mean, it's spelled exactly like Bowie, like David Bowie, but you know, I can understand why people would make that mistake. Uh, but you know what they can't mistake? What? The fact that our guest today has ska roots. Ska roots, punk roots, um, and the roots where those worlds collide. Really some legit, like hardcore punk roots. Yeah. 
you would not expect to see an actor from uh, Big Bang Theory, uh, somebody who was a regular at CBGBs in kind of its heyday. Yeah. And John Ross Bowie was. Yes, he was. And he played in a band too, Egghead. Yeah. So if you have one of those Egghead seven inches, get it signed. <laughs> Why not? Ask John for his autograph. Well, ska wasn't like necessarily his most favorite you know, genre. He liked the music and the stuff he knew, he knew very well. Like he was he was mentioning names of members of bands. Mm-hmm. So I was very impressed with his uh with his memory and his knowledge, even though it's not like necessarily his primary main genre. I mean, that's, that's fine. That's all we're looking for from people. Yeah. You don't have to be a super fan. You can just like it. A couple of years ago, or maybe it was a year ago, uh, you posted a photo to your Instagram where um, you were on stage at CBGB's when the toasters were playing. You remember this photo or, or at least the experience itself? I, I do remember this photo. I do. I do. I do very well remember this photo. Well, I want to hear more about it. Um, it was um, from when I was in high school and the toasters had a, a monthly residency in, at CB's. Um, and they were they were just such an incredibly reliably fun live act. This is right after Skaboom came out. So the Unity 2 are still in the group. Mm. Um, and they're just they're just a delight live and I would go and I would, and one time I brought my Minolta and I got terrible shots of the band, but I hopped up on stage at one point to dance because the stage at CB's was, you know, maybe 10 inches, 11 inches high. It was really just right off the, right off the ground. So I hopped up and I, I took one shot of the audience and it's kind of great. It's, it's perfectly exposed. <laughs> um, everyone's yeah. in focus. Um, I don't know who anybody is in there, but everyone's like sweaty and they don't look like they're having fun, but it was that it was, it was such a packed intense evening that I'm, I'm really glad I captured it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, okay. I'm, I'm from California, so I was not in New York in the eighties, but I've done a lot of research about it. And I know that ska and CBGB's, overlapped there was definitely a part of the ska scene in the in the late 80s that happened there Mm -hmm. what i've heard is that the infamous um hardcore matinees everyone knows about the hardcore matinees right that there was a period of time where there was ska matinees too very brief period of time they were saturday afternoons the hardcore matinees were sunday and for a brief period of time the ska matinees were saturday afternoons and they were very sparsely attended i went to a couple and I was always kind of taken aback at how few people were there, given that the evening ska shows were just packed to the rafters. And I don't know if there just weren't enough bands or the ska is just a it's just a real evening thing. Um, or if those fucking stoners couldn't get out of bed in time for a 3 p.m. show. <laughs> I don't know. I can't point to why the market failed at the ska matinee. But. I would be surprised if that phenomenon lasted for six months. I don't recall specifically, but I think it was a very brief run. Who besides the toasters played those matinees that you remember? You know, it's funny. I don't actually remember the toasters playing one of the matinees. I remember the boilers playing one. I remember um, a band called Legal Gender who switched their name and, and got a little bit better. And they were called... The New York Citizens. That's right. New York Citizens. 
um, who have a great song called Shut Up and Listen, which is sort of a mod ska hybrid thing, which is not streaming, but you can find it on YouTube. It's a banger. Um, and uh, and I remember there was one terrible white reggae band called Red Stripe, named for the Jamaican <laughs> beer. Um, if, they're, if they're listening, I apologize profusely, but that, they were not a good band. Holy shit. Um, but yeah, they, they would do the, um, they would do the matinees. Um, it w- I understood like why they would think that this would also work, but it just didn't, <laughs> it just didn't work at all. Um, so they discontinued them after a few months. Saturday matinee seems like a better time slot too than a Sunday. Oh, on every front, on every front, it should have, it should have worked. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where like. You know, it, it, on paper, this makes perfect sense. Let's remake the day the Earth stood still, but with better special effects. <laughs> on paper, okay, why not? It just doesn't pan out. You know, sure. I, I, I it, it's the goddamnedest thing. But um, it was, it was a really fun, vibrant scene in the late eighties, and um, it was. Um, they were definitely safer than the uh, the hardcore shows for obvious reasons. Um, there was just a general more inclusive and chill vibe across the board. Um, it was, um, and there were just so many, so many great bands. The Toasters were a real highlight, but the Boilers had a brief run, but they were fantastic. They turned into Skinner Box, mm-hmm. who were good, but the Boilers had something really, really special. They were really, really good. And there was a band called The Second Step. Yeah, yeah, Second Step, yeah. Who were, who kind of, they started to go a little more pop, and I think they were trying to get signed to a major, and it kind of fell apart. Um, They were, um, when they were good, though, they were really good. I like, do you remember, um, so it was Jeff, Jeff Baker was um, in Boilers, then Skinner Box, but then. Right, he was a singer, right? uh, Yes, he was singer and trombonist. Right, and then there was that guy Oliver, who was just the Boilers, and I think when Oliver left, he they became Skinner Box, and it was kind of a there was some weird politics that I wasn't privy to, but like some shit had gone down apparently, and Oliver was was no longer welcome in the in the group or whatever, and um, this was just a vibe I got by the way. I have no data to back <laughs> this up. This is not libel, but um, <laughs> but um, I remember going to see the Boilers and like, hi, we're Skinner Box now, and I was like, oh. I liked Oliver's voice a lot. I really did. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, during Skinner Box, Jeff started the Stubborn All-Stars as a uh, side project. But I always liked Stubborn All-Stars. I thought Sub- Stubborn All-Stars was the best. You ever, did you ever hear that band? I feel like at this point I have gone off to college. Okay. And I am in upstate New York and I am not catching, uh, I'm not in the scene as much. Um, uh, so yeah, my big, my prime CB going years were 87 to 89. Okay. Um, and, um, a great time to be going there. Great, great time to be going there. But, um, those were my, my prime CB's years. And then I would go to like some larger shows at like Irving Plaza or when they moved the Ritz up to 54th street in the studio 54 space, they did some like Super Bowl of ska shows that were fun to go to as well. You mentioned that you saw the toasters in the Unity Two era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can can you explain Unity Two to people? Because this is a very brief period of time for toasters, but I think a highlight of their career. The Unity Two were these two toasters named Sean and Lionel. Yeah, 
Um, man, that was a pull. You got it though. You landed. <laughs> I, I, that was piled away in the back of my head. I think I have a nosebleed now. That was stuck the landing. Wow. Sean and Lionel were, um, were sort of the hype men, backup singers in the toasters. And they had a couple showcase numbers. Um, and they were incredibly fun to watch because Rob, uh, was Rob Hingley was the singer. Yeah. Rob Hingley was a singer and a guitarist and a, and a great songwriter, but as a singer and a guitarist, he was sort of stationary in front of the mic and couldn't go too many places. And what made them such a fun live act is they had these two other guys who would dash all over the place and, and, and they were hype men, you know, they were hype men and Sean could sing a little bit and Lionel could sing really well. And he was a great toaster. I believe he was actually from Haiti. And they were a delight. And then they broke off and went solo and put out a record yeah. on a major, unless I'm mistaken. It is. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, called The Unity 2, which had a couple of um, really fun songs. There was a song called um, uh, Shirley, which was the single, um, which was kind of a fun, like an old school Jamaican ska number. Like it was a little slower. It was a little closer to... Um, uh, Desmond Decker than like the really fast shit that was going on in New York at the time. Um, they were, uh, they were a really fun uh, hip hop ska hybrid. And I'm kind of surprised. I remember we played the shit out of them when the record came into my college radio station. And I was like, these guys are great. We are going to play these guys. And I, I, I pushed them and everybody got on board. They would, we gave them a modest regional hit um, at, in Ithaca, New York for what it's worth. (laughs) (laughs) Huge in Ithaca. They were huge in Ithaca for a brief period of time there, but it was, um, they were, yeah, they were really, um, they were fun. And I, but it was, I gotta say, I think the sum was greater than its parts because the toasters lost a little something when they took off. And I don't know that the unity Two had much of a career after they broke off. They put out like one or two albums. That record did not do well. Yeah. And it was a shame too, because I don't know, I understand why people would be like, Hey, I want to go off on my own. We have a lot to offer here. But at the end of the day, the, the toasters with unity Two were just a delight. I mean, they, I went once a month for like a year and they were just always reliable and so fun and a, an absolute delight to watch and listen to. Yeah. It was, uh, the story goes is that, um, there was, like major label people scoping toasters, or at least that's what they thought. And then they said, Hey, no, we we really want unity too. Oh, wow. But they kind of were uh, thinking about going on their own anyways. So they're like, yes, interesting. Let's do this. Yeah. I thought it was good too. I I like them. Cause it's like kind of, kind of had that reggae, like rock steady toasting thing, but also sort of had that New York hip hop thing too. Oh, definitely. And like really fun outer borough, uh, uh, Queens hip hop. Yeah, too. exactly. Uh, it was really, um, they, they were just a, a really good party band. I'm trying to remember the other, we went two singles into that record. I am trying to, it was called, what is it? Yo, it was the title track. Yeah. Um, the title track was, what is it? Yo. And it was really fun. And it was a real get everybody on the dance floor thing for a couple of months in Ithaca, New York. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not a, a big fan of hardcore. But you did. Um, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, 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 it has a place in my heart. Um, I don't. I, I, for years, I, I, I went to a lot of those shows because they were that was what the matinees were, and it was easy to go to a matinee, and it didn't involve any bargaining with my parents because I'd be home by eight p.m., so it was not a big, a big deal. And I loved live music, and the energy at those shows were really fun. 
it was not my, here's the, here, here, let me put it this way. I, there was a lot of punk bands I would see and I would think, gosh, I would love to be in that band. I've really never seen a hardcore band where I've been like, oh, I'd love to be in that. Guy. I'd love to be up there with, I'd love to be up there with underdog. Oh, uh, somebody should put me in raw deal. <laughs> How come I'm not in the Chromax? Like I never had that sense of like, I want to get up there and do that. Like I had with other bands. That's the best way to put it. I think I, I, I enjoyed, but had no interest in emulating. Chromags featuring John Ross Bowie. I think that would. Hello, be <laughs> hi guys, hi fellas. Hey fellas, cool. If I keep my shirt on, I'd like to keep my shirt on. It's, it's all the same to everybody else. I do have tattoos. Actually, they're my kids' Hebrew names. <laughs> Even though you were a straight edge kid, the hardcore wasn't like really. I, it was, you know. I just, I, I like a hook. You know, sure. I, I, I really like a hook. I loved some of the guitar work mm-hmm. on those records. My my probably my favorite of the New York hardcore bands was Gorilla Biscuits because they were definitely the hookiest. Yeah. And Walter's career post Gorilla Biscuits has borne that out. And they also had the closest thing to a sense of humor uh, yeah. that you could possibly, which is not saying a whole lot. The bar is pretty <laughs> fucking low in that yeah. scene, but yeah. but you know they would cover the buzzcocks. You know, at least you know they had some some sense of irony that was sorely lacking in the other bands at that time. In your uh, delightful book, No Job for a Man, you, you briefly mention a, a genre called Krishnakor. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. People, people need to know about Krishnakor. Yeah, let's expand on that a little bit right now. I will do everything right. I can. Um, <laughs> uh, it is, it, as I say in the book, it is the weirdest musical subgenre I've ever seen up close. But what happened was a bunch of the New York hardcore kids, and these were kids who were, you know, they were kind of disenfranchised working class kids from deep Queens or the shittier parts of Connecticut. They weren't necessarily like of the artsy scene that brought us television or the shirts or Blondie. Like this is, this was about seven to eight years after that wave of CDs bands. And you had all these guys who had already seen a bunch of people get taken out by heroin and booze and heroin and mostly heroin and were and decided they were going to they were going to adopt like the DC strain of straight edge. So you, so the straight edge scene moved up to New York and became very big. And then when straight edge wasn't enough, they were all looking for some sort of extra spiritual fulfillment. And they all had their heads shaved anyway, <laughs> and the lower east side always had a bunch of Krishna temples. And 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 Hare Krishna is similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses or a lot of uh, evangelical Christian faiths. It's based in Hinduism, but they recruit. They go out and they recruit. And you would get flyered and you would have people, you know, try to sell you books. Um, I, I was approached by Krishnas all the time. If you wandered around downtown, they were looking for people. And the straight edge vegan bald kids were like you know it's really just a couple extra steps to go into Hare Krishna at this point <laughs> and they did and you had a bunch of bands like uh Youth of Today became Shelter and a lot of these bands became um uh hardcore devout Hare Krishnas and that's what they would sing about so you would look at like you'd pick up uh the first Chromex uh album and it has a mushroom cloud uh, on the cover, and then you go like two albums later, and there's a there's a blue god on the cover. And you're like, all right, something's happened here. <laughs> <laughs> there's been some sort of shift, <laughs> and and that was Krishna Core. It was a it was a a very odd religious offshoot of straight edge hardcore in New York. 
Did you have any friends that fell in with that? A couple, um, not close ones. I'm actually uh, in in over the past year, I've become friends with Brooke Smith, the actress who um, was a big big attendee at those shows at the at the Sunday matinee shows. And she's a couple years older than me, and she was friends with the Cro-Mags, and she used to drive them places. She got involved with it a little bit. Uh, I didn't know her when she was involved with it. And um, I, I didn't have anyone super close, um, but I was constantly being invited uh, to, you got to check out the vegetarian lunch, man. You got to try to come by and try the vegetarian lunch. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's just, it just, you know, I don't, th- I mean, it's homework, you know, I'm just swamped. I'm swamped over here, guys. Um, but it was a fascinating, uh, fascinating era. And there's got to be a book or a documentary about it somewhere. Oh, sure. I saw something on YouTube. It was just like a 10 minute documentary made in the time. I watched, I watched like a few minutes of it. And there's this, this guy, this kid who's in one of these bands talking and I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. He just sounded too, too just like wide eyed. Yeah. You know, like he's got the world figured out and it makes no sense. I was like, I can't, I can't watch this. No, I think it was, um, I, I think it really, it got a little, it got a little culty for some of those guys. And, yeah, um, definitely. you know, you do you, I, <laughs> I, you know, everyone, uh, fo- follow your bliss guys. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't my, it wasn't my jam. So you did the, the Ritz was a place you went to a lot for shows. Yeah, yeah, I saw some good, not just punk shows and ska shows. I saw a bunch of great bands at the Ritz. I saw Chuck Berry at the Ritz. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw, um, oh God, I saw the Cramps there. I saw, um, did I see the Pogues there? I might have seen the Pogues there one year, which was really fun. But it was, um, the Ritz was great. Old ballroom, great acoustics. Um, uh, saw a couple of amazing, breathtaking fishbone shows there. Um, which was, which were always, you know, incredibly fun. Late eighties fishbone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Between, um, between, uh, oh God, what's their second album? Is that the reality of my surroundings? Uh, see the self-titled EP, then it's in your face, then truth. Oh, sorry, between in your face and truth and soul. Yeah. That's when I saw them. Uh, that's the first time I saw them. And then I saw them on Truth and Soul. And then Reality of My Surroundings is the one that had the hits, right? That's the one that put them on uh, so, on the Saturday and Everyday Sunshine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, I saw them a bunch on that tour, too. The thing about Fishbone that was so cool is that you could put them on any bill you wanted, and it sort of made sense, you know? Right. Like, they were so all things to everyone that... Like I saw them on bills with hip hop groups. I saw them with hardcore groups. I saw, but no one ever went after Fishbone. Like you did not follow Fishbone at the time. Like you were just, you'd be, it was a sucker's gig to go on after Fishbone. <laughs> sure. Um, you were only going to disappoint. Um, so I remember seeing a bill at the Palladium on 14th street, which is now an NYU dorm, but it was a crazy fucking bill that was, um, this is summer 1990, let's say, um, in ascending order, dead milkmen, the dirty dozen brass band from new Orleans mm. Two live crew fresh out of jail and fishbone. Damn. Right. Yeah. It was a fucking crazy evening. Yeah. It was e- e- eclectic to a fault, but I had a great time. I enjoyed myself all the way through. <laughs> Chris Dowd, the keyboardist, he told me that, um, when truth and soul was coming out, that they really wanted to do a big show with NWA and that they just couldn't make it work with management. That's a shame. That would have been something. 
Truth and Soul era uh, <laughs> Fishbone with the uh, 1988 uh, NWA. Yeah, yeah, coming. That would have been that would have been fuck the police area. Yeah, that would have been really <laughs> <Yeah>. incredible. <laughs> um, that would have been really fucking strong. What a loss. Um, yeah, it was. Um, uh, that was a great era. Fishbone are, are doing punk rock bowling this uh, spring, and I'm going. Um, they are sort of in the middle of the day or later in the day, I yeah. think. But um, I still, I still pity the band that goes on after him, man. Sure. <laughs> I have a very specific ska story. Yes, I want your specific ska story. I thought you might. <laughs> um, this is the place for it. Yeah, I, I. So the last time I was, I was a series regular was a show called Speechless a couple of years ago, and it ran for for three seasons and had a small but devoted following. And it was a really fun set because it was very, very collaborative. And I was, I was not a writer or a producer, but I, I was allowed input and. Um, it was a real, if there was a, if there was a problem or someone had a, uh, wanted to like beef up a joke or something, we were, um, all hands on deck, you know, a good idea could come from anywhere. So I felt very comfortable pitching ideas and we had a running gag on the show where my wife, who was played by Minnie driver, had all these things she hated, 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 hated. And there was a wall in the dining room called the dead to Maya wall. And on that wall was a list of all the things she, she couldn't stand. And, um, uh, one, it was, it was just a place for uh, people to put up random jokes, um, of things to be annoyed at, uh, saying you think, uh, uh, in response to anything, um, uh, sandwiches with too man, with too much mayonnaise. There was all this random shit up there of things that got on my wife's nerves. And the joke was that the wall was just covered in things that pissed off my wife. <laughs> and one of the things, when we first revealed the wall, one of the things that was on there was ska, and there was a line about it. And Minnie, um, Minnie, who knows a great deal about music, and we had great talks about music, she's like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this line. I was like, what's, what's, what's going on? Because I'm, I'm in my late 40s, and I'm British. We all love ska. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we do, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. You all grew up with Selector and Specials, and you were in that fucking great second wave of British. Yeah, no, that's, we do have a problem here. And the crew, of course, is like, yes, by all means, let's miss lunch over this, you know? So everyone's starting to get, like, annoyed. But at the same time, I'm like, I, we can't ignore, if she says she hates ska, we have to do a whole other half a page on why this is the one middle-aged British woman who hates ska. Like we're fucked. Like we, this is a real, like, and the, our showrunner comes down from the writer's room and he's like, what's going on? And I was like, I listen, I know, I know how this sounds, but Minnie's got a case here, man. Or people her age from the UK fucking love ska. This won't stand. And he, he's like, it's already written on the wall. And I was like, I know, I know, I know. And we're just standing there. And I was like, okay, compromise. 90s ska <laughs> and everyone's like oh i'm like yeah she would not like the kind of you know i don't mind that stuff but she would not be into the more watered down southern california type stuff that you know like the boss tones and their lesser imitators that would not be her bag so i think we could say 90s ska and cover our bets and i mean it's <laughs> like i'm fine with that and I'm like, great. Okay, so what's the new joke? And somebody pitches, um, uh, Cedric, who was one of my co-stars, says, 
what's your problem? What did 90s Sky ever do to you? And Minnie goes, ruined the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, great, everybody's happy. We're good. We can do this. Let's shoot. Let's fucking roll. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> and it was it was arguably my greatest contribution <laughs> to, <laughs> to the writing of that show. Now, wasn't there an episode where um, she unbans everything on that list? There was, actually, yeah. And they... The, our composer wrote a song for it. I, yeah, I start to do everything. Like I, I, I take baths in the middle of the day. I have a sandwich covered in mayonnaise. Um, I, I roller skate in the house, and they accompanied it with a song that was an original song that was absolutely not the impression that I get. <laughs> I don't know what would make you think it was the impression that I get because it was not the impression that I get. <laughs> It had different chords, but it was certainly not the impression that I get under any circumstances. And in no legal way was this song that they used as a background for that montage the impression that I get. Uh-huh. Right. So that's how that went down. So you uh, you interviewed the Mighty Mighty Bostones uh, when you were a college radio DJ in Ithaca. Oh, my God. Yes, I did. Let's hear about I did. that. I, I, I interviewed um, uh, uh, Joe. Joe Gittleman? Okay. Joe Gittleman on the bass, yes. And uh, this was early 90s? This would have been um, someday, I suppose, or maybe right before that. Okay. Yeah. They would play Ithaca all the time. They were big in Ithaca. We played the shit out of them on our college radio station, and they would always pack the uh, the clubs there. And they probably went on to play the larger venues after I graduated, but they were huge in, in upstate New York. And um, you got into the show for free. I did, yeah. It was pretty cool. I got to, I got to see a lot of shows for free in college because I was on the radio station. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty fucking sweet. And let it be said also that um, Joe was incredibly polite and patient with me, and I was not a very good interviewer. Um, I just didn't have the chops yet. I got really. I still get kind of starstruck around musicians more so than I get around actors. There's just there is still something about like you're a fucking rock star, dude. Um, No matter how small a venue I've seen them play, they've still kind of done something a little extra. And I've, I've worked with impressive fucking actors, but I'll get so much more (laughs) in front of, you know, the bassist from the Boston's than I will in front of Diane Keaton. It's really weird. I don't, I, uh, I'm still, I'm still a huge fanboy. So like, what, what kind of bad questions did you ask? Like, uh, where did you guys get your name from? Oh, best question. It wouldn't have been that. It wouldn't have been that bad. Um, I had figured that out myself. Thank you. Um, I think I, um, I, I, I think it was, you know, like the really sort of generic, what are your influences? Um, and you know, get to their credit again, super fucking patient with me. I remember asking them because merging like punk or the very least hard rock with ska was something of a novelty, you know, it was not. Um, it was not something that was being done a ton. Even, I mean, you could say, well, The Clash was doing it, but not quite. The Clash would have their reggae and ska songs, and then they'd have their punk songs. But to do ska that fast was a novelty. And I remember talking to them a little bit about that, and they had just covered Enter Sandman um, as a B-side. And, um, and I talked a little bit to them about you know, why they were into Metallica and stuff like that. So, but I I just remember being, there was just a lot of dead air because I was fumbling for questions and, and super nervous. And how do they like playing? How have the crowds been? 
what is your favorite thing about, do your suits get uncomfortable? You know, it was that kind of thing. I was, re- I was, you know, whatever, 20 years old, incredibly nervous, and they were endlessly, endlessly patient. Another, another uh, notable ska band that came through town that didn't record much, but um, uh, do you remember Bigger Thomas from New Jersey? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yes. I'm friends with Mark. Yeah. Okay, so Bigger Thomas came through town. And I was an English major, and I was super proud that I got their reference. I got the reference Bigger Thomas from Richard Wright's Native Song. Son, I'm super proud of myself for that. So most of the interview was about that. <laughs> do, you, do you remember who in the band you interviewed? Uh, the singer and I want to say the bassist. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's Mark. Uh, the singer was a uh, was a really charming guy. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Robert. Okay, their bassist was this kind of. He was a big oaf, uh, big big Jersey oaf white guy, but he was super sweet too. Yeah. They were both really nice and incredibly patient with me. Again, um, yeah. The, I mean, I, I, those guys would do the college radio circuit, and God only knows what kind of dipshits they had to be interviewed by. So they were they were um, not new to that kind of embarrassment. <laughs> yeah. So in your book, like the, the reference that like jumped out at me the most that kind of surprised me to see in the book was you talked about the band one eye open. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've seen them before. We played with them, Aaron. When we were in a band together, we opened for them. Great band, kind of unhinged and kind of mm-hmm. insane, but in the best mm-hmm. way possible. Well, they lived in that van. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing. It's like they lived in that van. They were the real fucking deal. And and they're in the book because, A, they were a powder keg live. Um, and B, they were they were making commitments that my band, Egghead, was were not willing to make. We just were not like we we you know, we were relying on our day jobs and we had girlfriends and in one case a wife back home and we were like, Yeah, we we can't fully commit to this living out of a van calling ahead for the next gig, super duper punk rock thing. But, you know, if you watch the two of us play live, you could pretty much tell which one was rehearsing more. (laughs) And it was absolutely one eye open. There's no, there's no rehearsal, like nonstop tour. Yeah. Good for them. I'm so glad I shouted them out. You are the first person to ask me about them. Wow. (laughs) I'll tell you a funny story about them. So, in the mid '90s, they released a, a split record with the, this band called the Janitors Against Apartheid. I remember that. Yeah, it's called Nerds, right? Right. In pure '90s fashion, it's a parody of the Nerds candy for the art. Everybody did that in the '90s with, with their shirts or with their whatever, and um, they got a lawsuit. Or Janitors did. Janitors got hit with lawsuit. Lawyers came. All kinds of trouble. And I've talked to that band. They've told me all about it. And the funny detail they told me was that it's like they said they never could track down One Eye Open because those guys just use fake names in their <laughs> album. And they just no, the lawyers had no idea where to find this band. So they gave up. <laughs> I would never I would never in a million years know where to track those guys. down. <laughs> they were they were nomads. They had, you know, they they absolutely were basically off the grid. So it worked out in their favor. It totally worked out. <laughs> it totally worked out. Um, which band were you guys in? I was in a band called Flat Planet. Yeah, and then I was in that band for a brief period of time, and then I joined a band called Link 80. Oh, Link 80 sounds familiar. Yeah. Link 80 was much <laughs> bigger than Flat Planet. <laughs> okay, all right. Flat Planet, we, yeah. One of the One Eye Open guys uh, has a screen printing shop in uh, LA now. Oh, really? Yeah. Kinky, kinky Control, both with Ks. 
Oh, all right. Okay. Just swing by. Yes. <laughs> Just swing by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I absolutely will. When I need next time I need screening done, I will absolutely do that. Uh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah, I would. They were. Um, God, well, that would have been Charleston, West Virginia. We played a coffee house with them, and they were really sweet to us. So your band, Aid, Egghead. Okay, you started yeah. in what, like ninety two? Um the the Egghead that recorded started in ninety four. Okay. Um, there was an earlier draft in college, um, but the Egghead that recorded and toured was ninety four to ninety eight. Yeah. Pop punk, basically. Garagey pop punk, yeah. yeah. You know, it, people hear pop punk and they think they expect a, a sort of a slicker Blink One Eighty Two New sure. Found Glory yeah, thing yeah. that wasn't that I don't I don't have anything against that stuff, but we were a little closer to, um, and we were also listening to like a lot of uh, a lot of hick punk, a lot of like Nine Pound Hammer and Super Suckers, and um, a lot of Kinks. So we were a little more garagey than than what was. Uh, what was put under the narrow confines of pop punk at the time, but but that is this. I mean, the stuff I grew up listening to was Ramones and Dickies and and um, Toy Dolls and that really funny, goofy uh, punk rock is is still near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So your introduction to punk rock is as a kid, right? You were at camp counselors were doing uh, like mm-hmm. a dance routine to. They did a dance routine to Rockaway Beach. Yeah, that was the first time I heard that music, and I it really stuck with me. But then it was years later that I, I decided, like, oh, yeah, those guys, the Rockaway Beach guys, I should buy a record. And I didn't buy that record. I bought um, the first one because I thought the title, Now I Want to Sniff Some Glue, was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> and um, I still do. And uh, so I bought that record. And, uh, and the rest is trivia. Yeah, changed my life. Your impression in the audiobook of uh, the Ramones talking about wanting to sniff glue is pretty great. Oh, thank you. That was a fun... <laughs> It's funny. There's some bits that work better on the page, like written down, yeah. and there were some bits that work better in the audiobook, and that's one of them. Um, uh, I yeah, there's a whole chunk in there where what I I love about that song title is the now at the beginning of it, um, because there's tons of I wanna and I don't wanna right. in the Ramones canon, <laughs> but it's the now, the immediacy of now, and that sense of like. He's just checking off a bunch of errands he's got to run today. Like, okay, well, I ran to the grocery store. I got some milk. I should swing by and get a paper. Um, I should get up a <laughs> couple light bulbs at the hardware store. What do you want to do now, Joey? Oh, now? Now I want to sniff some glue. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, that sense of like, just one more thing I got to get done today. Mondays, am I right? You know, I just, I love that. <laughs> it kills me. It's so goddamn funny. <laughs> Adam listens to your audiobook. I read your book. I don't know what that says about us, but I just think that needs to be put out there. <laughs> it says that I read a lot slower than you do. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. I, I have gotten more into audiobooks of late um, myself. There's no shame in that. I'm very proud of the work that went into the audiobook. I'm glad I was able to accompany you on your errands yeah. <laughs> while you were running out to sniff some glue or whatever it was you had to do. Yeah. Lots of folding laundry and lots of doing dishes. Phenomenal. Great. Anything I can do to help that. Um, uh, it was a, uh, that was the first time I'd ever done an audiobook, um, was my own. And it was a, it's a steep learning curve. It's a very specific skill. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad to hear you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's great. How long did it take you to, to, to do it, to do the recording? Four days of, um, of five hour sessions. All right. It's not too bad. No, about 20 hours to record about seven and a half hours. Not too bad. No. But I, I, I finished the first like chapter and a half and sh- the director kept stopping me 
and and sort of nudging me in a certain direction. I was like, I don't know how to give this woman what she wants. This is really frustrating. And I, I've and then I got into a groove where it was, you know, the difference between talking to someone and talking at someone, mm. you know, and I got to the talking to place. And the director said, you know what I think we should do? And I said, we should go back and start over, shouldn't we? And she goes, yes, I'm so glad you agree. And so we 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 ditched like an hour of uh, of audio, just trashed all, all of it. And I started over and, and that's the version you hear um, because it really took me, it took me a while to get the hang of that audiobook voice. There's a something, there's a way of like, you're, you're acting, you're trying to bring them in, but you're also reading. And uh, it was a, it was a weird challenge. I, I'm getting all like boring inside the actor's studio stuff here. No, no, this is very interesting to me. I'm going to be recording audiobook uh, in a few months. So, oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, listen to a bunch of audiobooks and figure out what works for you, what you like. You know, figure out what you like listening to. Is it a book um, that you wrote? Yeah, it's. I, I wrote a book called In Defense of Ska. Oh, fantastic! Okay, great. A, I look forward to it. And uh, B, um, yeah, listen to like a lot of other music audiobooks and see what, what works for you. Now, this, this is probably not, not the case for you, but for me, I'll give you my story. They, they bought the rights to the book and they said, we'll, we'll, we'll get somebody, we'll hire somebody. And I said, I want to read it. They're like, okay, well, you have to audition. <laughs> I, was like, oh. I was like, okay, I'll audition, but I want to read it. I don't. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I had to send them like a five minute tape of me reading in order for them to approve that I was the person to read my own book. Oh, yeah, that happens. You hear those stories a lot. <laughs> you absolutely hear those stories a lot. Um, uh, yeah, I've, um, I did a cartoon pilot a few years ago that I wrote and I wrote a role for myself and I had to audition for it. Um, and uh, and uh, it still didn't go to series. So, you know, I don't know who's who won really, but um, yeah, no, you, People audition for their own shit. It happens more than it should. <laughs> John, have you ever listened to the uh, Henry Rollins Get in the Van audiobook? Believe it or not, I have not. I have not. I hear it's great. I hear it's great. You know what I loved is the two John Doe books that aren't really John Doe books. Um, uh, the ones, oh, is it Under the Blue Black Sun? He wrote two books that are histories of the early LA punk scene, but they're essentially he edited two oral histories. Okay. Um, and. Um, uh, and so he got, you know, Jack Grisham from TSOL and Jane Weedlin and, uh, and DJ Bonebreak and all these people got together and wrote a chapter on their version of the LA punk scene. And then they all read their individual chapters and it's a great listen. Amazing. Cannot recommend them enough, but I will, I will pick up get in the van. I should, I, I can't believe I haven't listened to that yet. Also, before we get off that topic, um, the American hardcore documentary, have you seen that? Uh, it's good. I like it. Yeah. I feel like each one of those scenes deserves its own movie. Sure. It actually feels a little rushed to me. Yeah. What about the uh, narration by Tim Armstrong? Uh, <laughs> fine. You know, wouldn't necessarily have been my choice, but fine. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's interesting to listen to. If for nothing else, the story of him talking about, I think it's youth of today coming to play at Gilman and him taking him to the donut shop and them explaining that they're vegan and straight edge. Just that snippet is so funny and good. Yeah, I need to go back and watch that. You're right. I do need to go back and watch that. Um, yeah, I um uh uh yeah, it's uh th that's an interesting uh field. You know what I'm saying though about that movie being actually a little on the short side. Like you really could there's a moment where they're interviewing HR 
in front of the Mulholland fall, um, fountain here in LA. And he's talking about yeah. like the mistakes he made in his youth. And I'm like, well, no, let's, there's a whole movie. Let's do that. And there is an HR movie. Yeah. Let's unpack, let's unpack that whole thing. Yeah. But I mean, that's a whole situation there. Yeah. I recommend actually, um, cause the guy who made that movie also wrote a book like simultaneously. I think he must've used, you know, the same interviews for the movie as he did for the book. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have you read the books really in detail? And the book's like, great. Yeah. And it's like every city. And it really kind of was enlightening to me to see how back in the eighties, how different a scene could be based off of city. Sure. And some of those scenes were like awesome. Some of them sounded completely insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the way they would get taken over by the right wing sort of like mm-hmm. element of hardcore. Uh, when Orange County invaded Los Angeles. Yeah. 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 That whole thing is really, really interesting. Yeah. That book is great. The, the sad thing about that book is it says, yeah, so the scene's pretty much dead by 1986. And I start going to CBS at 87 <laughs> when I turn <laughs> like, man. Fucking don't yuck my yum. Fuck you. <laughs> Dude, that's like that's like me with the East Bay uh documentary. Oh really? Yeah, because I started going to shows like right as the right as the documentary ends. Like that's when I started going to shows up here. Yeah, that's frustrating. It's always frustrating when when some gatekeeper tells you you uh you what the bands you saw were not relevant. Yeah, that's <laughs> wait, just backing up a little bit, I just want to ask about a couple other venues in New York really quick sure. before we move on. Did you ever go to Coney Island High? Oh, we played Coney Island High. Yeah. Upstairs or downstairs? Uh, both. What do you remember about Coney Island High? What I remember about Coney Island High is that we played with, we got on great bills. We got, we opened for the Dickies. We opened for Sicko. We opened, I think, for the Figs. Um, we got on great bills uh, at Coney Island High. Um, and it's funny. I had heard at the time that they got closed for serving for not checking IDs and and for serving underage people. But I don't, but I heard it was just a rent thing. They just, you know, weren't making the rent, but they were, they were, it was a great venue. I loved playing that place. I loved seeing bands there and I loved playing that place. That was that we had, we did some great fucking shows uh, at Coney Island high. It was great for the listener. Visually. Can you describe what it looked like? Um, I can really only compare it to other other clubs. Well, for one thing, it was nowhere near Coney Island. It was on St. Mark's Place in Manhattan. Um, uh, it was um, there was a uh, a larger venue um, on the ground floor, literally the ground floor. You walked straight in, and then there was sort of an upstairs lounge. Um, larger venue was probably uh, I don't know two hundred, two hundred fifty people upstairs, maybe closer to a hundred. Um, uh, it was, it was the right combination of wide and long. So there were really no bad sight lines. Um, you know, like there were some places where if you were all the way in the back at CB's, you were at the end of a really long hallway and the sound was good, but you couldn't really see much. And God forbid you were only five, eight, like I am, you know, you could really miss out <laughs> on shit, but, um, the way it was laid out Coney Island high, you could, you could get a good vantage point from anywhere. It was wonderful. Um, and, uh, it was just a, there was a fun scene there. It was just, um, you would see Marky Ramon hanging out sometimes and, uh, Joey would walk by all the time cause he lived around the corner. Um, uh, Marky Ramon and the intruders played there a bunch. And, uh, we, as I said, Egghead was the one time we got on really good bills with like like-minded bands was, um, was Coney Island high. And then occasionally around the corner of the continental, neither of which are there anymore. What about uh, Wetlands? Oh, Wetlands. Wetlands was fun too. Yeah, Wetlands was all the way over in the in in uh, 
it's it barely qualifies as Tribeca, but I guess you would call it <laughs> Tribeca all the way on the west side of Manhattan. Um, Tribeca, you know, for being the triangle beneath canal. It wasn't quite in the triangle beneath canal. There's a set bunch of streets that make that triangle. It was further over, really close to the West Coast Highway, but uh, West Coast, West Side Highway. Um, but it was a a really long uh, venue with a stage on one side. And you would see, you know who I saw there a bunch was Bob Harvey. Remember Bob Harvey from New England? I feel like they were from Rhode Island. No, they're from uh, Michigan. Ann Arbor. No. Yeah. They were? Yep. They were from Ann Arbor? Yeah. Oh, that sounds right. Now that you mention it, you're right. They were from Ann Arbor. You know who I might have them confused with is who they played with this funk band called Chucklehead. And I feel like Chucklehead <laughs> might have been from New England. Yeah, I'm wrong about them too. Uh, time. She's undefeated. Man, why did funk never take off? <laughs> um <laughs> the um but yeah, it was um they were uh, Wetlands was really fun. Wetlands had a really eclectic booking style. Like you could yeah. go see the queers and then the queers would clear out and like the next show they'd clear out the house. And then later that night, like the aquarium rescue unit would come on. Um, they were huge for jam bands. A lot of jam bands cut their teeth at, um, at the wetlands. So if you were like a, a fish fan in 1988, you could probably see fish at wetlands or, Blues Traveler, or Spin Doctors, or any of those guys from that Northeast corridor of jam bands. Spin Doctors. <laughs> what about um, Brownies? Brownies was small and cramped, and I did not like the guy who booked there, and he didn't like me, Mike something. Yeah. Um, but um, he, uh, he, the, what sucked about him not liking me is the guy had impeccable taste. He he got he would like book so many good bands, and I'd be like, oh, I guess he doesn't think we're as good as these guys. But I um uh, I, I never saw any ska there, but because it was a very small venue, and I feel like right. more than four or five people on that stage, and you're cramped. You're really really yeah. cramped, and so it 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 out of necessity sort of prohibited a horn section. Um, but, um, do you remember the upper crust? Do you, Aaron? No, I don't know that. They were a hard rock band that dressed as 18th century fops, powdered wigs, single black (laughs) mole on their cheeks, ruffled collars. And they had an album called let them eat rock. And they had, that was their shtick. That was all of their fucking shtick was that they were 18th century aristocrats who played ACDC type shred rock. And, they would get up there. Who is this brownie? These conditions are deplorable. It was, they were. They had. They were so committed to their <laughs> shtick. They were magnificent. And like Egghead had really good shtick, but these guys had really good shtick and chops for days. And it was just like, God damn it! Why are you guys so fucking good? And they were not for everybody by any stretch. You know, you really had to like have a fondness for. 70s arena rock and restoration comedy and it just so happens i'm in that venn diagram but um <laughs> so they never played the big rooms but god were they fun so in uh, in your book you you touch on some uh some of the culture of punk and and when i say punk i mean the punk scene so that includes mm-hmm. you know punk hardcore ska this 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 larger sort of diy punk scene that we're all kind of talking about Sure. Not specifically the music, but you kind of talk about the culture of punk in, in, a, in a way, in ways that are very, very specific and very, you know, very on the nose. And you talk about its impact on your life. So some of the stuff I like. So you, you briefly talk about the fear of being a poser when you're part of the scene. 
Yeah, oh yeah. You talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, it was a punk once you got in and once people got to know you could be pretty inclusive. But it was that first step of getting in and people getting to know you that was a big jump, you know? And there was and I imagine this is more of an issue now, um, you know, that you can, you know, buy a, you know, buy a cramp shirt at H&M, but but at the time the gatekeeping was very intense and there was a sense of like look some of us get beaten up for having orange mohawks so if you're not willing to fucking walk the walk then you're not really with us and i understood that but i also just didn't feel like doing anything particularly crazy to my hair i just wanted to like get up front and pogo um so there was a sense of 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 gatekeeping and um yeah uh, you know, you, you must be this cool to ride this particular ride. Um, but once you made it clear that you were, you really loved this music by, you know, getting up front and having, you know, Brian Baker clock you in the head with his guitar during a Dag Nasty set, you know, once you, once you prove that people were usually pretty inclusive and, and friendly. And as I've grown older, it's only gotten friendlier. Um, I I I went to a punk rock bowling last year, last September, and it was like a high school reunion for a high school I didn't actually go to. It was lovely, um, <laughs> and you know some of that comes from oh this guy's on TV and he likes punk rock, and I, I recognize that. But there was just a lot of people who also have no idea who I am who are like oh man, I where'd you get that shirt? I'm like oh I'm, I will happily tell you where I got the shirt. Where'd you get that shirt? You know, and so it's um it's always going to be a fun place for uh angry misfits with a sense of humor and and that is um still how i identify <laughs> you also talk about in the book how punk is um self-critical you know and that's yeah. kind of an anomaly i think in, in in music scene that's an anomaly across music i think yeah it's it's the the i cite a couple of bands that um that had songs that questioned some of the dumber aspects of punk rock mm -hmm. um, makes no sense at all by who's uh being a terrific example. Um, uh, uh, Where do you draw the line by dead Kennedys, um, which has a, a great line. Um, what was great about the Kennedys is that they questioned everybody, you know, they, nobody was immune to their criticism. So like they would come after, um, you know, a, 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 genuine liberal like Jerry Brown, because there was still a lot of bullshit in his platform and they would question their fellow punks. And there's a line from that song, which is on um, bedtime for democracy, their last record. And the line goes, uh, anarchy sounds good to me. Then someone asks who'd fix the sewers. And I remember being 16 and being like, Oh yeah, no, who's going to volunteer for that? Yeah, that sucks. That's uh, huh. interesting. What would we do? And I just found it interesting that punk was the only genre that would turn the lens upon itself a little bit and and question each other. And you find this in um, in minor threat songs. You'll find this in Fugazi songs. Um, people got very critical of the drug scene as that became more prevalent. Um, yeah, it was it was a a very self aware genre, um, and there aren't too many of those. Yeah, because I think like uh, self-aware genre, self-critical lyrics leads to self-critical thinking. Yeah, I think that's the thought behind it, and I think there's val validity to that. Yeah, I think I think that's what makes um, punk endurable. 
yeah is its um tendency within those four or five chords to you know reinvent and question a little bit in the book like one of the ongoing things you discuss here and there is sort of um racism sort of racism within your family your own personal biases that you're kind of working with mm-hmm. uh, and working through and, and, you know, making progress as you get older. Um, I don't know that you specifically said this, but I'm curious the role of punk rock and the culture of punk in terms of that aspect of yourself. You know, uh, that's a good question. Um, punk has you questioning the official story, you know, whatever that means. And it has you, it it can also have you ideally looking out for the people who have fallen down in the pit. And I mean that literally, and I mean that figuratively. And growing up in New York, you begin to realize that, yes, there's a lot of very angry people. And some of those people are of a certain color, but there's angry people of every color. It's a gorgeous mosaic of rage, that city, especially when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. and you just start to realize that there are a million factors that have affected people's progress over the years. And, you know, without punk rock, I don't start reading Maximum Rock and Roll. Without reading Maximum Rock and Roll, I don't discover Noam Chomsky. I never hear of Howard Zinn. Or if I do, I don't until like later in college. Um, And, I don't take everything that Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn take as say as um, as religious. I don't think it's it's sacred, but I'm awfully glad I was exposed to those ideas through punk and through the culture surrounding ska and reggae, too, which is obviously going to be much more diverse than punk rock was much more diverse than hardcore was. Certainly, Um, you, you just it's very hard to stay an asshole if you if you grew up in Manhattan and you're paying attention, you know? You're going to hear from everybody and if you're really listening, you'll realize that everyone's just kind of trying to do their best and you know, the the whole racism thing with me comes from being told at a very early age that I did not get into a very um elite school because of racial quotas in 1976. And even though I knew in my heart having taken the test to get into that school that I had shit the bed. I had done horribly <laughs> on that test. I, you know, when you fail the test and I was like, Oh, I'm failing. I am five and I am failing this test. I shouldn't be tested right now at all. I am five, but I am a nervous wreck right now. And this is not going well. And my parents were like, well, you know, got to live in a certain amount of black people, which is a terrible thing to tell a five-year-old and probably not true. And, uh, just, a, a just a complete, um, skewering of facts and it fucked me up for a few years there you mm-hmm. know yeah and then my dad was kind of old and right wing and he was born in 1937 and um you know not an enlightened baby boomer he was you know before that um and he had his ideas and i think every boy wants to impress his dad to a certain extent so i would have parroted his ethnic jokes and and shit like that and i i remember being at a party with some of my ska friends and telling a joke and I, I'm grateful I don't remember what the joke was. And they were like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And I was like, yeah, no, you're right. I shouldn't do that, should I? Yeah, that's dumb. And it's actually not even that funny, is it? Huh. And um, so, yeah, I can credit Punk and Scott with a lot of eye-opening stuff. 
Now, I think if I if I recall, like you described, what appealed to punk rock to you was kind of the volume and the sort of punch in the face. It felt like. Would you say that's accurate? That it was more of the the sonic experience of punk was sort of the 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 initial what got you into it. Well, I was such an angry and scared kid, and none of the music I was listening to sounded like what was going on inside my head. Even metal didn't really, because metal was so polished, you know. We, you know, we're, we're at the, I'm at the beginning of, um, like Maiden are established and Metallica are on their way up. And these are guys who are incredible musicians. So yeah, it's loud, but it's also so precise and technically proficient that while I enjoy it, it isn't necessarily speaking to me. And again, I don't think I want to go up there and do that. You know, I don't want to emulate that. I'll listen to it. And I'm very fond of the uh, Metallica and Maiden and a, a lot of metal bands. But there was something about the the gleeful, loud amateurishness and the anger that came with punk rock that really spoke to me. And I was like, oh, this sounds like what's going on inside my head. And that's creating me. That's giving me a sort of uh, a sense of balance within the force. <laughs> the culture of punk, though, that's like sort of a something that follows. You get into punk and then you kind of learn about the culture and the culture kind of has an impact on you. Does that feel accurate for you? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it just, what the culture did for me was it it showed me that the line between performer and audience is pretty porous, and that, years later, gave me the courage to be like, well, then, you know, if, if someone can stick a mic into the audience so we can all sing along, what is to stop me from eventually getting up on stage myself? And that led to Egghead, and Egghead led to acting. So, yeah, I don't think I'm, I honestly... Not to put you know too much significance on it, I really don't think I pursue the job I have had I not picked up that first Ramones record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing about about the Ramones specifically was they were you know hometown heroes. So you would see Joey walking around, and you could stop him, and he would say hello to you, and he would be very he wouldn't shake your hand because of the OCD, but he would be very gracious. He would be very fucking gracious and sweet, and you know he was quite literally a foot taller than me. Um, um, so it had to look like, you know, I was something he had wiped off his chin, but um, he, it was, there was an accessibility to punk rock that my friends who were really into uh, what have you, Duran Duran, Madonna, all these other people who were surrounded by bodyguards. Um, they just would never know that. Like, okay, you, we both went to see bands over the weekend, but I hung out in the band's van afterwards. <laughs> The Ramones actually weren't like in their even in the, even in the eighties and nineties they weren't like necessarily like a gigantic band. They were still playing. No, they weren't. Yeah, like they weren't. No, especially not in the states. They would play in the nineties. They started to play really enormous venues in South America. There's all that footage of them doing like soccer stadiums down there. They never got huge in the states, and they were a club act. Yeah, in uh, New York, they were a big club act, but they were a club act. Yeah, so that makes a big difference in terms of like accessibility, like you're saying, and sort of your your view of them in terms of rock star yeah it's just a simple question of economics it really is like there are less people crowding this guy therefore (laughs) he is able to give his attention to you know the weird guy with braces who just stopped him you know um so yeah it's a real um uh supply demand situation (laughs) (laughs) now chris gethard um uh, posted that when when he posted about your book he said that you were a mentor to him and that you taught him how to transition um, you know, pop punk, a pop punk upbringing to the comedy sphere. 
Uh, I'd love to get your take on that. Uh, oh, wow. Um, I, I think, I think Chris had a lot of it figured out. He's very gracious. He calls me a mentor a lot. And I, I, I think it's very kind, but I think Chris would have been okay. Uh, I think Chris was going to land on his feet no matter what. Um, but what we had in common was he'd actually seen my band. He had actually seen Egghead. Uh And, um, and we talked about that when he started taking classes, there's another story about, about him getting into, uh, uh, getting into UC, the UCB community, Upright Citizens Brigade, when I was working at the office. Um, he called up one time. Yeah, I'll tell this story. He called up one time and uh, he was like, I want to I take a level one class and I can start this Saturday. I'm like, ah, we're booked solid this Saturday. Our next level, one's class, level one improv class starts in September. And Chris goes, um, uh, oh, that's rough. I start, I go back to school. I'm at, I'm, at, I'm at Rutgers. I'm a student at Rutgers. And I think, I don't know what to tell you, man. We don't, we don't have new classes that open until September. Because, all right, well, maybe they'll, you think a weekend class might open? I think it might open. I don't know, man. I, you know, call us back. And he goes, oh, hey, by the way, is this the John Bowie who used to be an egghead? And I was like, I was like, am I being punked right now? What the <laughs> fuck is happening? Am I, who is this prank caller? And I said, yeah. Goes, yeah, I used to see you guys in Jersey. You guys used to play like the youth center at, in Summit and Berkeley Heights. I'm like, yeah, that was us. That's crazy. And I thought like, you know, what I'm doing is probably unethical, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I, I crammed him in <laughs> to a class that started that Saturday. And um, he became one of the rising stars at UCB. Oh. Um, and But he had that kind of make your own opportunities, let's DIY this shit spirit running through him anyway. Um, so yes, I, I finagled a couple of things to p- make him the 19th person in an 18 person <laughs> class. Um, I owe that teacher an apology <laughs> now that I think of it. So that, when he says mentor, he means you, you bended the rules for him. Yeah, yeah. I was I did something shady. Um but I um uh yeah, it was um uh it was he was a real asset. One of the reasons I I I I let an egghead fan in was because like look, if he's an egghead fan, he's obviously got a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> we we had no fans who didn't have a sense of humor. No no egghead fan takes themselves too seriously. I think this could be a real asset. <laughs> Um, you know, if he'd been like, oh yeah, are you really into venom? I'd be like, yeah, try again in September, buddy. Um, but he was, he was an egghead fan and that mattered to me. And I, I think it made for a good, um, uh, uh I think history has, has borne me out on that. He's done amazing work. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about upright citizens brigade. Um, you work there in the, in the office. You also, you know, participated in, in the classes and whatnot. This is kind of where you got your transition into improv and comedy. You talk about how you, you kind of make some comparisons in the book to punk rock and improv in that it sort of breaks down the walls, the audience to uh, performer walls. Mm-hmm. But uh, another interesting thing that caught my attention was that you said that when, when you went there and you started becoming friends with people in this scene, everyone was just just really open about their uh, mental illnesses and, and everything wrong with them was just casual conversation. Yeah, you know it's interesting because when I was coming in uh, into punk rock in the 1980s, I had close friends there, but there was still a lot of them were very much Mike from Suicidal Tendencies. Don't worry about it, mom. I'll figure it out myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and no one was talking about their their problems in any real way, in any really open way. And that wasn't just a punk rock problem; that was a societal problem at large. But I. I had just started antidepressants when I started taking improv classes and um, 
I, I blurted out in a scene or no, not even a scene in a monologue, in a mon, in a personal monologue that I was, I was, that was a true story that I was telling to inspire scenes. I mentioned that I was on Zoloft and after class, somebody came up to me and was like, Oh, how's that working out for you, man? Cause because I'm hit or miss on Prozac. And I was like, oh my God, we're just talking about this shit now. We're just like, we get just to, we just get to say this stuff to each other. And um, it was remarkable how many people were, were trying to work through some, some mental health issues um, at, uh, in comedy and how open people were about it. And I found that very soothing, very needed and very soothing. Yeah. I've, I've found that, you know, friends of mine that are comedians or whatever, so comfortable they're just so comfortable talking about the darkest parts of their personality and it's just like it's just like you're having a you're just talking about sports or something or you're just talking about the weather even yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent um i i i feel like and and again this is also a societal thing at large yeah um i think generally people are getting more comfortable talking about it but i think comedy was a forerunner because so much of it has to be about vulnerability and um and and talking about your own shortcomings is usually a great way to start or not even shortcomings the, your issues the stuff that is on your mind is a great way to start defining your comedic voice and um and for me being super candid about um clinical depression was a um was uh, was ironically a way to get funnier <laughs> Yeah, because I think like with punk rock and, and, you know, like there's a lot of there's room for misfits. I think there's definitely an inclusivity element where it's like you don't fit in. You're welcome here. But yeah, I, I don't know that they're necessarily super open about talking about everything at the same time, you know, just to make a generalization. Yeah, you know, it's it's again, I'm not like I'm not going to a show going to shows with, with teenagers. The people I meet the you know the middle aged punks that I meet who are still going to shows are are pretty fucking candid about because um, you know all of them are you know either deep in the thick of addiction or right. sober you know because <laughs> there's kind of no halfway point in in <laughs> punk rock um, so you just talk you're certainly going to talk a lot about people's sobriety um, and um, I think generally speaking we as a whole have moved towards a broader discussion certainly broader than it was when um when i started taking uh taking paxil in 1998 mm -hmm. yeah definitely okay so you know we'll kind of cut to the future you're you you're in you got you got on big bang theory um you become a working actor you make a comment in your book about how you know people might not think this is punk rock but i you know anything that fills you with serotonin and adrenaline is I just would, I would love to hear a little bit more about wh what you meant by that. Um, what I mean is that I got here doing, you know, and it, 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 the, the section of the book you're referring to mentions the fact that, yeah, it's pretty establishment to be on a, a massive hit Warner Brothers show. And I, I accept that. And there are those, there are some purists who would likely call me a sellout. Um, a, what punk rock told me is to maybe not give too much of a shit what other people think. <laughs> but also uh, to to really find your joy, you know, and find the thing that you're good at and do that. And the jump from punk rock to comedy was so logical to me that this does feel like a natural extension. You know, it doesn't feel like there's been some 
massive compromise. I feel like I was compromising my principles so much more when I was working in corporate America in my 20s and working for all sorts of nefarious companies in management consulting or engineering or pharmaceuticals or, or what have you. Companies that were up to God knows what kind of malfeasance. Companies that were literally being investigated by the Justice Department while I was while I was temping there, trying to earn money to support my punk band. I feel a lot more at peace with the work I do for a living now than I did in my twenties, and it's fun. And I think it's where I, I, to put it back into corporate terms, I think it's where I add value. I, I, I entertain people. That's something I seem to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be uh, great if I was better with numbers, but I'm not. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, monkey dance, monkey dance. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to in defense of Scott. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, and subscribe to the podcast, wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, Grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying, ska now more than ever. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.